third week of our series, Cloud of Witnesses. And we're walking through Hebrews chapter 11, uh, commonly known as the Hall of Faith. And we're looking at the faith of these men and women in this chapter. Because the best way to see what faith looks like is to look to those who've lived by it. Faith, after all, isn't just believing the right things, but living in light of what we do believe. However, the main goal of this chapter in Hebrews and of this series isn't just to celebrate these people's faith, but to see how in some way it points to Jesus. Their faith points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, and Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith for us, then, as Christians, is the total alignment of ourselves with Jesus. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our actions, we align all these things with Jesus. Uh, Last week, we looked at the faith of Abel. And this week, we turn now to uh, Enoshi, or uh, Enoka, or properly called Enoch. Uh, It's been interesting hearing how people say his name all week long. And you might be thinking, Enoch, who is Enoch? Why are we having a sermon on Enoch? And if you guys know who Enoch is, you're probably wondering, like, what's there to say about Enoch? There's not much written about him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. That's it. Uh, it's, it's almost verbatim of what we read in the book of Genesis chapter 5. We get one sentence. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch was taken. You know, like Liam Neeson style. Taken three. The taking of Enoch. You know, uh, you know Enoch wasn't taken in that sense. He, he was taken by God. But that's it. That's all we've got to work with. So what is there to say? You know, Enoch isn't topping, you know, the baby name list. Uh, Enoch, if I'm honest, wasn't even on, like, my top thousand texts to preach out of the Bible list. Uh, But apparently, as you're going to find out, uh, there is a lot to say about Enoch. Before Christ's time, uh, there is actually quite a few Jewish writings about Enoch. He has his own book called The Book of Enoch. Him escaping death lent him to be a bit of a celebrity Uh, Now, this book didn't make it into the Jewish canon of Scripture or the Christian canon of Scripture, uh, but it was highly revered. Uh, Enoch, in this book, is is seen as a prophet, and he prophesied to humanity about their their, their pending judgment. And this was kind of the, the legacy that developed around this person, Enoch. But the author of Hebrews takes a completely different approach. Uh, Enoch makes it into the cloud of witnesses, not because he was a prophet, not because of writings attributed to him after the fact. Uh, He's in the cloud because of his faith. So just like we did last week, we're going to let the author of Hebrews set the framework for how we look at Enoch's life and how we understand his faith. So we'll look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the pleasure of God, pleasing God, and the joy of Christ. So open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Underscore that in your Bibles. Having pleased God. This is so beautiful. Last week we looked at Abel's faith, and it was his faith, uh, which is why God gave him regard or gave him favor. And and it's faith, we saw last week, that is the entryway into a life-giving relationship with God. 
But now we see there is so much more to God's favor or regard. There is God's pleasure. God doesn't just regard his people, he delights in his people. And this is a revolutionary view of God. In the ancient world, the gods were angry. You couldn't know exactly where you stood with the gods. You had to make the sacrifices, and the gods might be happy one day, grumpy the next, angry the next. You could never really know where you stood with the gods or if they, you know, their blood sugar was just right. Um, the gods were finicky. And yet, Enoch is described as having pleased the God of Israel, pleasing him in such a way that he was taken away from the earth into God's presence to be with God. And the backdrop during Enoch's time makes this all the more revolutionary. Uh, the, the chapter immediately after Enoch's life is Genesis 6. Verse 5 reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that the, every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And in light of this, verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made man, and it grieved him to his heart. What you don't ever want to lose sight of is that the evil committed by us in the world, the darkness of our hearts, grieves God. When God acts in judgment or when he seeks justice, he doesn't act out of some detached anger or some love of destruction. He's completely like the imagined finicky gods of the ancient world. God is grieved over our evil and corruption. And what would God's grief be other than the fact that humanity was made for something different than what they had become? When God acts in judgment or justice, uh, it's always against humanity's own self-destruction and their rejection of the created order. And this rightfully angers God on the one hand but it also grieves God. And yet, within this world, this world that grieved God, a world getting worse and worse, Enoch is commended as having pleased God. And God's pleasure in the scriptures is not a tame thing. Consider Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God speaking. God's pleasure towards his people is like a mother with her nursing babe and then some. It is God's delight to have his people continually before him, to enjoy them, to delight in them. Consider Isaiah 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Think about that moment in the wedding where the bride comes around the corner and the groom sees her for the first time. You look to the bride, but you also look to the groom. The joy on his face, the elation, maybe even tears. This is a picture of the rejoicing of God over his people. This is how God looks at us. Better yet, Zephaniah 3.17. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
God's pleasure is abundant and overflowing. It's emotive. It's, it's heartfelt. It's deep. It's consistent. God's pleasure drives him to exalt over you with loud singing. This is not like the gods of the ancient world. You may hear or you may think that the God of the Old Testament is just angry and vengeful. I want to remind you that all of these passages come directly out of the Old Testament. The dominant picture of God in the Old Testament is a God of steadfast love and mercy who is faithful to an unfaithful people. And yes, he does act in judgment and justice. It's always with the greater vision of redemption in mind. What we see in these verses is that our God is not a tame God. He is not an aloof God. We see that he is a rejoicing, singing God who takes pleasure in his people. He delights in his people. But this idea of God taking pleasure over us, it does something in us. It's not what we expect of God. It's not what we expect at all. Do you remember the first time you saw your parents you know, act in a way that you'd never seen them act before. I distinctly remember the first time that I saw my mom cry. You know, I was seven years old, and she was helping me change a light bulb in my bedroom, and for whatever reason, she threw caution to the wind, which everyone just seems to do when they change light bulbs. You know, like, you just use the craziest things to change that light bulb, and she decided to use my little rickety desk so she could reach the bulb. But the desk gave out from under her, and she fell and smacked her mouth on the desk on the way down. It's terrible. She ran out of the room, went into the bathroom, locked the door, and I followed suit to see if she was okay. And I knocked, and she didn't answer. And all I could hear was her sobbing, just sobbing. It was so, so sad. And I remember exactly what I felt. I was shocked. I didn't know my mom could weep. It was the same, uh, you know, it, it just broke my paradigm, you know, what I expected of my mom, what she could feel. And uh, it was the same thing the first time I ever saw my dad really get excited about anything. My dad is a reserved gentleman. You could say he's a lot like Enoch, a man of few words. Uh, he is the epitome of a British demeanor. Uh, he keeps his emotions to himself. Don't get me wrong. He has emotions. They're just to be felt, not expressed, that sort of uh, character. And I remember as a kid watching uh, the Oilers in the playoffs, right, with my dad. And... Uh, they won in the playoffs, and, and in that moment, my dad leapt up from the couch. He was like Tom Cruise in that interview with Oprah, you know, like jumping up and down, just saying, yes, 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 and it just shocked me. I'd never seen my dad express excitement and joy like that, getting so wrapped up in the moment. It totally broke my paradigm of how I thought my dad could act, what he could feel, what he could express. In the same way, hearing that God breaks out into song over his people is not characteristic of the God we thought we knew. It breaks the paradigm of what we thought God feels or what God expresses. And I want to address two ways we respond to this picture of God. The first is pretty common in our city's culture. You just don't care. You don't care if God delights in us or not. You don't really think about it at all, but you do care about your own pleasure. At the very least, you think that your own pleasure and happiness are really good things to pursue. And of course you do. We all think this. But the scriptures unashamedly teach that our greatest pleasure, our greatest happiness, our greatest joy as humans is to be found in the pleasure of God. You may not care about God and his pleasure and his delight, but if you could get a glimpse 
of God's pleasure, you would. But if you do care, the second response to God's pleasure is this. Could God really be pleased with me? Maybe it's been a while since you've experienced God's pleasure, or maybe you you haven't experienced it at all. You've been told about it, but there's a gap in your life and between your life and this story of Enoch. You know, for you, there's no getting wrapped up into heaven, let alone wrapped up into God's pleasure. And perhaps over time, you know, doubt has crept in or fear has crept in. At best, God cares, but he's British. You know, he keeps his emotions to himself. Uh, He's Anglican, right? Just really reserved. Uh, Thanks be to God, he's not. But uh, at worst, God is displeased with you, you think. The question then for all of us is how do we please God and how do we know his pleasure? Enoch pleased God, which means it must be possible. So let's turn back to Hebrews. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Unsurprisingly, uh, this comes back to faith. Faith is what brings us into the pleasure of God. And fortunately, at this point, the author of Hebrews um, spells out what it is about faith that pleases God. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God For whoever would draw near. We don't want to miss a subtle uh, shift here. Pleasing God has shifted to drawing near to God. In a world that doesn't really care about God, the first step to pleasing God is drawing near to God. Uh, My daughter Ansley, she's about 16 months now. She's learning how to speak. It's super cute. Uh, There's like a hashtag on the internet that I created, Daily Ansley. A lot of you you know, see a few photos a day of her. Um, She's getting a few, you know, words and sounds down. Uh, After the service, if you get to see her, ask her what sound a lion makes. It's super cute. She'll go, you know, it's just, it's adorable. The other words that she has down pat is mama and dada. And if she's feeling particularly efficient, ma and da. Uh, And she's in this phase, I'm hoping is just a phase, where she really prepares, like, prefers mama over dada, right? So this morning, for example, she smacked her lip. It was bleeding. It was sad. Uh, I picked her up to console her, you know, and, and she goes, mama, 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 not the mama. Like, why are you picking me up? You know, it's, I am simply a means to which she can move closer to mama. And if I'm not moving in that direction, I have entered into her discontentment. There are times, however, uh, where I come home from and she's playing with maybe her favorite toy or her favorite person. And she looks away from these things. And she looks up at me with her big blue eyes, and she goes, Dada! And she puts her hands up to be picked up. And, oh, I just live for that. I love that. It, it pleases me when she draws near to me in the most simplest ways. I want her to want to be near to me. I want her to delight in me like I delight in her. And when she does, I totally melt. And if she ever figures that out, I am in so much trouble. Um, But she, her delight in me pleases me. God takes pleasure in us drawing near to him. And this tells us a lot about God. He desires us. 
He desires our interests. He desires our affections. And the slightest step towards God, even the smallest step, is a step towards what pleases God. Our desire to be near him. But there's some qualifiers in the book of Hebrews about what it means to draw near to God. Because the author of Hebrews is constantly calling us out of infancy of faith and into maturity of faith. He writes, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Two things, and the first is this, we must believe God exists. This just makes sense. If you're going to approach God, you have to believe that he exists at all. And if you don't believe in God, you can't expect him to be pleased with you. If I had you over to my house for a dinner party and you just ignored me the whole time, I would not be pleased with you. And say I tried to get you involved in the conversation, I asked you some questions, and you just didn't respond. You know, so someone asks you throughout the night, you know, hey, why are you ignoring Alistair? It's a little awkward. And you responded, Alistair? Alistair doesn't exist. I would be displeased with you. You know, don't do that. Um, Drawing near to God necessitates that we believe there's a God to draw near to at all. And I understand. There's a logical leap from saying there is no God to there is a God. But my point isn't to argue about the existence of God. My point is that to please God, you must first believe God exists at all and then draw near to him. You don't have to have all the answers, but you do have to be moving in his direction. But the second thing that the author of Hebrews tells us isn't as straightforward. First, we must believe that God exists. And second, we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. God rewards those who seek him. God is generous. God gives. God blesses. God rewards. First, let me address any misunderstandings here. This isn't about... Uh, God suddenly raining down Bentleys and mansions and tiaras, like that would just be destructive. Um, God isn't going to just reward your every whim and fancy just because you seek him out. That's not what this passage says. That's not the sort of reward the author of Hebrews has in mind. Uh, God rewards those who seek him by giving himself to them. Yes, one of Enoch's rewards was not tasting death. But his true reward was being brought into God's very pleasure and delight and eternal presence. One of the key distinctives of the Christian faith is that our reward is God himself. Which means if you're going to seek God, you don't seek him for the little reward handouts that he can give. You believe in God and you seek God and there's value in seeking God because he desires to be found. He desires to bless. He desires to pour out his delight over you. The reward is God himself. What an incredible gift to receive. Our reward is to enjoy God and to be enjoyed by him. And this should cause us to seriously question our motives of why we seek God. Do we seek him like a cosmic vending machine? Do we seek him like a philosophical puzzle to be solved? Are you just not interested in seeking him at all? Or do we seek him as the God who is to be enjoyed forever? Look at how the NIV translates Hebrews 11.6. It says, anyone who comes to God 
must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This captures the nuance of the verb used for seek. This isn't a half-hearted, I'll see if there's a God, maybe, when I have the time tomorrow sort of pursuit. It's not a side project. It isn't sitting around uh, in a philosophical circle pontificating about life and God. It's not a question simply to be answered. This isn't a game of hide and seek. God isn't hiding. This is a wholehearted, give-it-your-all, earnest pursuit, seeking to know who God is and how he engages with us. But the question remains then. Even if we do as Hebrews says, we believe in God. We earnestly seek God. We desire the reward of knowing him and being enjoyed by him. How can I know if God is pleased with me? Ask the question, how can I know if God is pleased with me? And this is where we need to step back and we need to consider how Jesus is the author and perfecter of Enoch's faith. Remember verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so he shouldn't see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch did not taste death. He was taken into God's presence. And Hebrews says this happened because Enoch pleased God. But why is this even possible? Enoch's faith was in the God who can save. And although he didn't fully know it, his faith was ultimately in what Jesus would do for the world. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, that what Jesus did was for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? Some think it's the joy of returning to the presence of God. Verse 2 goes on to say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But if his joy was simply returning to the presence and pleasure of God, which is something Jesus had throughout all eternity, why descend and die on the cross at all? Jesus didn't need to endure the cross to please God either. The Father has always delighted in the Son in an eternal relationship of love and joy. What then was the joy set before Jesus? We were. We are his joy. The joy set before Christ was knowing that through his death, our sins would be wiped away and forgiven so that we could be reconciled to God. Christ's joy was that he could redeem us and free us from the corruption and evil of our hearts and the world. The joy set before Jesus was that he could bring us with him out of the grief of God and into the pleasure of God. And when you doubt whether God takes pleasure in you, or if you haven't felt it in a while, remember that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. You are Christ's reward. You are God's song. You cause God to rejoice Because of Christ, we become his sons and daughters. Is faith then, is faith what it takes to elicit God's pleasure? Not really. Faith simply brings us into God's pleasure. 
We don't warrant God's pleasure because of our faith. Yes, when we draw near to God, it brings him pleasure. But our faith is in Jesus who has shown us just how much God loves us and delights in us and enjoys us and how far God is willing to go to reconcile with us, giving his own son. Our faith in Jesus is in the one who extends that same love and delight and enjoyment into us by the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced that Jesus wants us to experience God's pleasure and delight over us, not just intellectually, but emotionally. This isn't just a theory, but a reality to be lived. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was a preacher, a philosopher, a theologian in the 18th century. Uh, The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy calls him America's most important and original philosophical theologian. He was an intellectual powerhouse. He played a crucial role in the revival now known as the First Great Awakening. And during this time, Edward's wife, who isn't as well known, Sarah, had very real moments of knowing God's pleasure. And and Jonathan was so impressed and awed by what God was doing in her life that he uh, compelled her to write the experiences down even though she didn't want to. He knew that all his intellectual understanding of God meant nothing if it couldn't actually be grasped and experienced. Listen to Sarah's own words of her encounter with God. My mind was so deeply impressed with the love of Christ and the sense of his immediate presence that I could with difficulty refrain from rising from my seat and leaping for joy. I continued to enjoy this intense and lively and refreshing sense of divine things accompanied with strong emotions for nearly an hour, after which I experienced a delightful calm and peace and rest in God until I retired for the night. During the night, both waking and sleeping, I had joyful views of divine things and a complacent rest of soul in God. I encourage you to read her whole writings. They're they're amazing. Now, what she experienced may not be normative for every believer. We may not all have these experiences on this side of eternity. But I hope we do. I hope I do. But what Sarah Edwards experienced is true of Christ's love for us all. You know, what she experienced, God's delight and pleasure and love, is true for all of us here. And I do believe Jesus wants us to experience his love and pleasure and delight in profound ways that are unique to each of us. So what do we do? We take the advice of Hebrews. We lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and we press on running with endurance to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on him. We earnestly seek God not to earn God's pleasure, but because God has welcomed us into his presence and delight, we earnestly seek God with faith, knowing that it was Jesus' joy to save us. We earnestly seek God, not for any other reward than enjoying God himself, because God has given us everything in Jesus. This is why Paul writes, we can have nothing yet possess everything. Your greatest pleasure your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction in this life is on the table. God is offering it to you. And if you receive it with faith, 
The scriptures say that a party breaks out in heaven. That there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one who returns than the 99 who are already there. A party and song breaks out in heaven. The angels rejoice. This is what happens when we grab a hold of the pleasure that God is offering to us in Christ. You simply have to put your faith in him and trust him and receive what he so freely offers. And if you're thinking, pastor, preacher, you don't know me. You don't know the things I've done. God couldn't possibly be pleased with me. What I do know is that for the joy set before him, Christ died for you, not when you were your best, not some future self of perfection, but for you at your very worst moment. There is, you can't outrun the grace of God. You can reject it, but you can't outrun it. Enoch reminds us that Christ did what we cannot do. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus saved us. We cannot make our own way to heaven. God takes us there. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, not our own, we are brought into the pleasure of God. You have it all in Christ. The one who descended from heaven so that one day you may ascend into heaven like Enoch and experience the unending love and the unending presence of God and having glimpses and tastes of it here and now. But as we've said in this series, faith isn't just believing the right things, but it's living in light of what we believe. If our faith is in the God who delights in us and takes pleasure in us and rejoices and sings over us, how could our response be anything else than earnestly seeking him by giving our all to run after him and enjoy him in every area of our life, relentlessly pursuing him, not to earn the pleasure, but because the pleasure is already ours? What greater pursuit could there be in your life? 